Imagine it's 1922. 10 million young men have died. Europe is in ruins from the Great War, and worse, you've been forced to go to work every day at a bank. It's a situation ripe for discontent, and T.S. Eliot, an erudite American expatriate, channeled it into a towering monument of modernism, the 433-line poem The Wasteland. With the help of mustachioed proto-Nazi Ezra Pound, Eliot gave the world an allegorical tour de force. Alluding to everything from Dante and Ovid to modern pub conversations and ragtime, this poem is the 20th century on paper. Eliot fractured the modern world into cultural shards and gave us the view from its glittering, broken angles. We've encountered this Picasso of the pen in our educational wanderings, but never gotten down and dirty with the poem itself. So, we poured ourselves some of Eliot's favorite gin martini cocktails and headed to the endnotes. It's time for episode 93 of Toasting the Classics, The Wasteland. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something that people call a classic and we drink something inspired by the classic while we talk about it. My name is Dave MacArthur. My name is Dr. Clinton Arlenier, PhD, professor at your service. Wow, you really make me feel drabby by comparison with your... I just take, I just repeat the same thing that <laughs> I do. What are we doing this week? So we are doing my pick. I, we had to, to, to do a reading, or I had to do a book rather. Uh, so this is a very short book, but it's a complicated book. We could we could talk a whole semester class about this, and there are semester classes about this. This is T.S. Eliot's famous 1922, I believe, long-form poem called The Wasteland. I got a whole book. I was, I was at a really nice bookshop, actually, when you sent me the message that this is what you wanted to do. So I got The Annotated Wasteland, like a good 225-page nice. book, okay, like yeah, pretty yeah. much all about it. I got about halfway through. I read all the uh, I read a bunch of the annotations and then I haven't read the prose that T.S. Eliot wrote that touches on the poem, which is the second. Oh, OK, half. well, I think I'm probably going to be OK without that. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't that's, know. I think it's OK. Well, especially because it changed over time, like what he said about it and what he how he felt about it. He said all kinds of stuff about this poem, definitely, or yeah. about his writing in general. So, yeah, you know, there's a, a postmodern or post-structuralist philosopher theorist. I can't remember if it was Roland Bart or if it was Foucault who wrote a piece called Death of the Author. That sounds more like it would be okay, that was Bart. Bart. Yeah, that was Roland yeah. Bart. So yeah. Roland Bart talked about Death of the Author. And basically it was that before post-structuralism, like you sort of took the author at their word. You know, somebody would write whatever it happens to be, The Wasteland, for example. And then T.S. Eliot would say, well, this is what I meant by that. Or this is what this was. Or this is what that means. And okay. that's what it meant. Right. And so literary criticism was all about trying to figure out what the author's intention was and what the author meant by that. With post-structuralism, and then more so with postmodernism, you basically have this approach where you just forget about the author. Who cares about the author? It doesn't matter what the author said. Oh. Doesn't matter okay. what the author meant. Doesn't matter what the author intended. It's all about the audience. It's all about you and your experience and you reading it. What does it mean to you? Blah, blah, blah. And I think that was sort of prompted by like if you look at T.S. Eliot. What he said about the wasteland in the 1920s is different than what he said about the wasteland in the 1950s. So in the 1950s, he said, I never intended for it to be some about despair and agony and depression and, and some statement on modern society. And it was actually supposed to be optimistic and upbeat. But back in the 20s and 30s, he agreed with everybody that said, that, you know, that I think this is really about despair. He's like, yeah, that's what it's about. I think that there's definitely, there's no question that this poem is about the state of society in 1922 and how bad things were and how bad people felt. Mm -hmm. I think there is a reasonable interpretation where there's an optimistic undercurrent to this mm -hmm. poem as well. I, th I think you could make that argument, but 
Probably that has to do with the changes in T.S. Eliot's life as he got older, if he said something completely different and optimistic. I think he was not the same person. Maybe so. Um, and I guess we have to back up a little bit. We do. Oh, we do. First of all, let's get our, let's get our drink. Oh, let's get our drink on? Okay. We used to wait until yeah, the middle. Remember, remember when we were young and naive and we'd wait until the middle of this thing? before? <laughs> before yeah, no, I think that's crazy. Happened? I think that then people lose the benefit of hearing what we sound like as we get slightly sloshed towards the end of the podcast. So what are we drinking? Oh, yeah, I, it was my, my thing. So we are drinking. So T.S. Eliot once said, there is nothing quite so stimulating as a dry martini cocktail. One, it's just a great quote. You, that's why you have to be an author. So you can have great quotes about booze. I mean, that's what all and drugs, I guess, depending on who you are. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely. Cl clearly his favorite drink was a was a dry martini cocktail. So I looked it up. So he would have been writing, he was writing his, you know, the wasteland came out in 22. So we can say that he was in London, he was in Paris um, in the in the 20s. So I looked up a dry martini cocktail. Now he calls it a dry martini cocktail, uh, which is kind of odd. So I looked it up and Turns out the cocktails or the martini rather was a lot different back then than it is now. The recipe I sent you, hopefully you followed it. It's mm -hmm, half I gin, did. half vermouth. So it's equal parts of both rather than a lot of dry martinis today is like they basically just coat the glass in vermouth, you know, throw the vermouth out and fill it with gin or vodka or something like that. Okay. So this, this isn't vodka. This is gin. Vodka martinis didn't come around until the sixties. James Bond, we talked about that. Uh, really sort of made them famous. So before that, they're all made out of gin. He's in London. Makes sense. So half gin, half vermouth. And I found out that they didn't become, it went, didn't switch to dry vermouth. It actually started out as a sweet drink, kind of a sweet cocktail. And it transformed to a dry vermouth. Uh, so that's why he called mm. it a dry martini cocktail. They had a couple of dashes of bitters in it too, which I thought was really weird. So um, I pre-mixed it. I'm putting it in a glass of ice just to stir it i used my shaker but i poured everything in there just to mix it in there it stirred good bit and because i had the convenient strainer top to it that's why i used nice. the mixer. Yeah, i don't have a strainer so try not to get the, get any ice in there if you can again it was not easy to find bitters i ended up at like the third place i went the grocery store was finally the place where i could get bitters so it actually this the martini actually had a curacao in it they did away with that and then they went to orange bitters and then they just sort of went to bitters so any, any type of bitters okay. yeah and if you notice it's definitely sort of an orange tint to the drink i think you might have put more bitters in you said just sort of a splash of bitters so that's a really just well, i did a, i did a couple of dashes of that is such a big amount to me that i had no idea what i was supposed to do i figured wow. not enough was better than too much yeah that's a much different drink but that's really good isn't it Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's fine. I like it. I may be a little more bitter, so I could get a little more of that orange taste in it next time. Yeah, but it's a little bit. Well, I don't know how much how much it's supposed to have. Remember, it evolves. Have you ever had somebody like kind of um, score a lemon peel and just sort of spritz the lemon peel over your drink? You can actually taste it. I mean, it's that that oil in it is so strong. I could I could spend an after day in London or Paris drinking that. How about you? Sure, absolutely. Back in the sitting in the backyard, someplace uh, hot which I'd like to be in right now because today it's cold and rainy in New York and horrible. So, Oh, well, it's, it's, it's cold and rainy, cold and rainy and windy in, in New Mexico. So define cold, really cold. It's like in the fifties here. Yeah. I was going to say, right. It's <laughs> barely 40. It's like, it's actually, I thought it wouldn't be that cold as I went out today because it was about yeah. 40, but I got out there and it's because there's no sun and because it's like right. raining. It's, it was it was cold enough that my toes were getting cold through my shoes. Like it was, you know, it's a cold day. So we were talking about how 
Clark said that we should forget about the author and just make our own interpretations mm -hmm. of things. And it, right. that sort of dovetails with what T.S. Eliot said. I don't, I don't have quotes to hand, but there was a lot of talk about how he thought that the poet should should strive to be to have it be as impersonal as possible, mm -hmm. to be like, this is just a poem that somebody wrote, and I'm a good poet. I'm not in this poem personally. Right. I'm looking at this poem and I'm thinking it through after thinking about that quote, and he did not do that. I don't. I don't. Right. <laughs> My right. biggest surprise, I have two things I'm thinking about for biggest surprise, both of which I believe are references to T.S. Eliot himself in the poem. So um, I'll talk about it th that at the end, but I do not think he managed to be impersonal. I think he shows exactly yeah. who he is as a person. I think right. he shows you, you know, the, the great assumption is obviously this is a European guy. He's not European in a way, mm -hmm. obviously. Yeah. Talk about that, which is a weird phenomenon, but... Right. This is this is a white dude living in like 1920, and it's quite obvious. And he's a young he's a young person who has just experienced the war as a young person. I think who he is comes across 100 percent in this poem, even if he was going for something else. There's a lot of him in in the poem. Absolutely. Oh, I to yeah, um, totally. He was rich and he was young. I mean, they they called him the original beatniks. You know, Hemingway is in Paris as well, mm -hmm. and so is in Joyce. You know, he meets Joyce, Ezra Pound. Mm -hmm. Was, was his mentor, you know? So these are all a bunch of beatnik wealthy, or they come from a wealthy background anyway. Socialites, really, that that happen to be really good at 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 their craft at writing. They're very they're, they're both in the same time period of modernism, like Hemingway yeah. and T. Right. S. Eliot, but they're both having completely <clears throat> different responses mm -hmm. to how to do modernism. Mm -hmm. or, I don't even know. Is Hemingway considered modernist or is he a realist author? Is that different? Is that two separate strains? Because I feel like what T.S. Eliot's doing in this poem seems to me a lot like what Picasso is doing in painting. Yes. And Actually, they, they say that, that that's sort of a visual comparison as, as a Picasso. Yeah. And I, and I think that's I think that's apt. You know, when I think about it, I, I read it through the first time. And by the way, I wanted to I wanted to I, I thought I had read this, but I. The only thing I remember at all is the fire sermon. I remember the opening mm -hmm. stanza stuck in my head. Mm -hmm. And I remember the concept of the fire sermon because I remember reading the notes and learning about Buddha. And I, at the, this mm -hmm. is a long time ago. It's like where I learned about some of the basic ideas of Buddhism, like mm -hmm. 20 years ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. So this was really pretty much me coming to this new um, yeah. when I read it again this time. And I, I kind of wasn't expecting that. I don't think I'd read this since I was like a senior in high school coming back to it. But you I read know, I read lot, it a lot different. I read it through the first time and I was just I have to admit to, to to I mean some of the some of the parts, like I said, the opening stanza and several other parts all the way through are just beautiful poetry. They're just great to listen to, even not understanding what he's talking about at all. And then other bits, especially like the one that jumped out at me was the part in the bar with the ladies talking to each other. Mm -hmm. just sort of like some dialogue i just yeah. read that and i was like okay so you spent months writing this stanza and then what just rattled this one off in five minutes and was like okay i'm done <laughs> what like right. what is this i don't understand this and there's there's yeah. several other parts like that and it's really only i i, I don't think anybody would get this reading it the first time through i, I don't think you'd just be like oh yeah this, this is what he's talking about here maybe ezra pound understood it the first time through if he knew something about who T.S. Eliot was and if, if he understood every single reference the guy was making, which, you know, I, I'm pretty well educated, but a lot of this was, I, you know, these some of these are references to things I've read and I didn't even catch them the first time through. Only only when other people pointed out, oh, this is a story from Ovid. This is a story from right. 
this is Shakespeare, you know, this is, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I get some of the references. Like I, I, I was thinking the Canterbury Tales, like when it opens up, I was like, oh, this is a reference to Canterbury Tales. I get that. The first thing in Canterbury Tales is talking about the month of April. So that's, that's not a coincidence, I don't think. But mm -hmm. I bet you, so you did this in, in high school, but otherwise not so much since then? Oh, gosh, no. No, I would never have read this otherwise. Poetry has <laughs> never been my thing. You know, this brings me back to my literature degree. It really does because it's it's this very mm -hmm. kind of abstract type of type of writing. Not just, just abstract. Say this real quick. It's difficult. Yeah, difficult. difficult to read. It's not. So this is just for those who haven't read it. The Wayfland is a 434 line poem written in five sections. Uh, again, published in 1922. T.S. Eliot was a very sickly kid who grew up very wealthy in St. Louis, studied in, in various private schools all around the world. He went to Germany right before the World War I broke out and said, I, I think I'll study somewhere else. And so he left and went to England, studied there. So he's very, he was very much of that time, a wealthy white kid, globe hopping you know, white kid with a lot of money and a lot of time on his hands. So what should I do? Oh, I guess I'll be a writer. He gets enters the writing industry as a critic and as a for a publishing house and so forth. And as a teacher in England, he befriends Ezra Pound, of course, also uh, living in, in London at the time. Pound becomes kind of a mentor to him. He also meets James Joyce, as, I, as we mentioned. So all these writers, it was a big community. And a lot of these, some people call them the original beatniks living in uh, London and Paris at the time in the 1920s. But there was a big writing community there, Hemingway. And F. Scott Fitzgerald was there. He was Hemingway's buddy that they go around and drink together. Mm -hmm. But uh, so it was all kind of like, that was the thing to do, I guess, if you had money and were interested. I think in I mentioned this. To do. I think I mentioned this in the Hemingway episode, but what, what wouldn't I give to go out on the town with Hemingway and Fitzgerald or with James Joyce and Ezra Pound or something? I mean, that would be, that it's the best night I could possibly imagine hanging out right. with guys like that. Right. I saw, I mean, I, they would, all I knew they would about go out, you can, you can imagine they would go out all night. Yeah. Wake, you know, and then and then sleep till like two in the afternoon, get up, mm -hmm. go to the cafe, mm -hmm. you know, have have some tiny espressos and a, a lot of cigarettes and mm -hmm. talk and almost like a salon atmosphere. Oh, talk yeah. about things they've read, paintings they've seen, artists they want to go see, blah, 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 blah yeah. until the sun goes down. And then they would absolutely do it again. You know? Yeah, it sounds great. That's I can't think of a better way to spend your like early 20s, late teens. That would be amazing. You when know. Hemingway was there in Paris, let me look this up real quick. He came up with a cocktail called Slow Death in the Afternoon. Did he call it that? Because that's the name of one no, of his it, books. That's, that's no, I'm sorry. Like... It's called, it, no, it's just called Death in the Afternoon. Oh, okay. Well, um, still... And it does It does have, it, it shares it with the, with the story. But it is one and a half ounces of absinthe, four and a half ounces of chilled champagne. And uh -huh. the way his directions on it are something like, pour in slowly so that the that the absence settles, you know, or fills it with a murky glow or some junk. And he's like, drink five of these slowly. <laughs> and I mean, five would put you under, man. So yeah, death yeah. in the afternoon cocktail. I think he developed that in, in Paris, obviously with ab absinthe and champagne. I just read this book by Robert Kaplan. It's about the Adriatic Sea. And for some reason, I don't know if he just randomly took a, a Ezra Pound's cantos with him. But he mm -hmm. talked about Ezra Pound constantly. And then after, while I'm like mostly mostly done with that book, you suggested this. And so I was thinking, oh, that's weird. Like for some reason, Ezra Pound is coming up a lot in my life recently. All I knew about the guy was 
that he was kind of a mediocre poet. Like, I don't, I don't think he was considered that at the time. He was considered great, <laughs> but the problem is he became a Nazi right. later. So everybody went back yeah. and reevaluated his poetry and said that it sucked, which I don't know if that's true or not, but I could see why, I could see why they would feel that way. I, I was looking people up in the course of researching this and I saw these pictures and I was like, Ezra Pound was cool looking, like as a young yeah. guy. Yeah. He had like, a, just, he like a really, I, that's the guy I would want to look like back in those days. <laughs> well, I think all of the, again, if you're, if you had money, you had no worries in the world, you could just be a cool beatnik guy. You know? Yeah, I mean, exactly. That, the beatniks that came later, the real beatniks, Kerouacs and Cassidy's and stuff. We talked about this. The difference between them and Burroughs is Burroughs had money. They, none of them did, right? So they're always scraping and mm -hmm. scraping. That was always part of their mystique. You know, these guys had money. They would hang mm -hmm. out, you know, and they would spend it lavishly. I mean, none of them were broke. Hemingway talks about having to rent a cheap flat or whatever in Paris, but Hemingway is a trust fund, baby. Most of them all were. So that's just sort yeah, of what you did. They all look sharp. They all had this look about them. Yeah, they're good, good looking people. They're good looking in the way guys in bands are a lot of the time. They're just cool looking. I read this book about the music scene in New York in the late 90s, and they kept talking about how good looking the guys in the strokes were. And so I was looking at the pictures. I was like, they're cool looking. They're not yes. good looking. They're cool right. looking. It's not the yeah. same thing. It's the yeah. kind of looks appeal to guys and girls. You know, yeah. if you have like NSYNC, women think they're attractive or sorry, <laughs> men and women think they're attractive straight guys are not like oh yeah i want to look like those guys you know whereas right. like when i saw ezra pound i'm like that guy's cool i would i would want to dress like that guy and emulate yeah. him if he's younger you know it's a different yeah, different had, he, appeal what's your favorite privilege your privilege uh de definitely definitely leaks out of their appearance i think Oh, I mean, and just for the sure. education, just to, to have this level yeah, of, yeah, of education sure. in you is yeah. is a privilege, right? And he's yes, from, of, of all places, of all the places in the world to be from, St. Louis. So right, Saint Louis. we are yeah. we are doing a series here on on uh, toasting the classics on the great poets of the Upper Midwest. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a, this is the first first and last volume of that of that one right there. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. I don't know. I don't know how many yeah. more. Maybe Mark Mark Twain. Mark Twain is a great author. Okay, Twain, perhaps. In the Midwest, yeah. but I associate Twain, him yeah. with the South, despite him also being from Missouri. He feels more Southern. Yeah. Although apparently T. S. Right. Eliot was kind of self conscious about his Southern accent. I think he did have one. He escaped and he never really came back. I mean, he, he no, he never he never even went back to Harvard to finish his PhD. No. He, he wrote was, a philosophy was, PhD there and he just gave up yeah. on it, never went home. I, yeah. There's a thing on Spotify that you can listen to that's him reading The Wasteland. Mm -hmm. And he just, he has, a, he has a British accent. It's obviously an affectation. Like I, I listened to one by Alec Guinness, which was, that's probably mm -hmm. my favorite. But there's another one with uh, Alfred from Batman. Uh, mm -hmm. Michael Gao did mm -hmm. one that, on uh, YouTube that you could watch. Jeremy Irons did one. There's a whole bunch of really great British voices doing the wasteland. Mm -hmm. I think I think Alec. I think Obi Wan Kenobi is probably my favorite, but I could be. Yeah, I can see that. I don't, I don't know who I heard. It was good though. I, I I listened to it as well, which is something I would recommend to anybody listening. You know, definitely read it, read it yourself, but then have somebody trained. Yeah. Go listen to to them read it, and they've got they've got all the right pauses, and 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 they've been trained on on sort of how to read this. To you know, I have to train mm -hmm. to read a poem, but when he wrote this. You can see the staggered lines. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it. They have meaning to them, and it, and it and it represents how you're supposed to intone this particular line, and and where you stutter, and where you stop, and where you pause, and 
And so it's all sort of partly there and, and people, you know, get trained on how to read these things. So definitely, uh, definitely read it yourself, but also, and I'll say it doesn't take long to read. It's an hour, something like that, maybe an hour, maybe 45 minutes. It's, no, it's no, I, I, the ones when, when the pros are reading it on, on Spotify and YouTube and things like it's 20, 26, 27 minutes that they're, that they're mm. taking to do. So it's not, yeah. Not so, a long time. Well, now, if you take if you take the time to actually look up, look up exactly like, a, a line in German. What does this mean? And, you know, if you take that the time, then looking up the lines in German, I, I think so. A lot of the references. So, like, there's the um, Frisch der Wind, you know, in Zu Heimat, whatever that one that's in the uh -huh. beginning. Yeah. So that's like, on one hand, what I read it for is, I'm it's just supposed to be sort of a confused babble of voices, which is definitely mm -hmm. part of the theme of the poem. So you could read it with that and not look it up. But they're also each one of those quotes from another language is a reference to something in particular mm -hmm. and will be enriched by reading what it is. I mean, yeah. that's from Wagner. That's Tristan and Isolde. There's two references mm -hmm. to that in the first section. Um, mm -hmm. There's the burial. Sh there, there's five sections. That's another thing. I don't know. We've mentioned that, but they sort of represent almost completely different chapters and different mm -hmm. voices of the poem. There's there's the burial shroud, a game of chess, the fire sermon. Death by water, which is really short, and then what the thunder said, and mm -hmm. some of it, some of it, just it's just going to go right over your head if you don't if you don't look things up. I think right. I, I yeah, I think I said this before, but I just can't imagine somebody reading this and being able to understand all the references. It's right. very much like James Joyce. I used to date a girl in, in college. She was a she was a poet. She was studying English literature, and she was currently a poet. And I remember her because it was before the internet. You couldn't just look everything up easily. Every single mm -hmm. reference, to James Joyce. So she was literally pointing things out in Ulysses and asking me, well, what's this a reference to? And I'd be like, I can help you with 20% that you wouldn't get from somebody else maybe. But, you know, there's some yeah. classical yeah. stuff that I recognize. But it's kind of it's kind of fun almost. It's almost like that's yeah. the project is to sit and maybe in the way that we have the Internet so we could have something completely filled with illusions. Maybe in that time, just because of the ubiquity of print and how much people could read and stuff, maybe it was kind of fun to have a million references to things. I don't know. Maybe that's part of the phenomenon of, you know, there's a part of me that thinks that so snobs like it because it, 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 they can appreciate it. I mean, uh -huh. the highest of the highbrow. So it's kind of like a, maybe it's a challenge. Like you'll only get all this stuff if you're, if you're really smart. Okay. And you've read right. all this stuff too. And so the snobs read it. Mm -hmm. And truly those people that know all those references get it, but this was like a critical and financial success. I mean, this was this was his his opus. It really was an opus, and it was critical. You know, all of the, the well, not all the critics, but it it was a slow burn for a bit, but it was certainly a financial success for him. Won all these awards, everything else, but it it really made him set him in stone. Now, of all the people that could read this and get it, I would say that would be. 2% of probably anybody that actually read it and bought it. I think there's a huge part out there of people that want to look smart. And, mm -hmm. oh, Ezra Pound says this is the best thing in the world. So I, I have to read it too. I don't know what the hell it says. Right. <laughs> but Ezra Pound says it's really smart. And I want to look like I'm smart. So I'm going to read it too. Right. You know, what that, like, you know what that reminds me? It reminds me of uh, the way people treated Einstein at the same time. It was like... Somebody had a quote that said, you know, general relativity, this is 1915 that comes out. 
So there's probably 50 people in the entire world that knows what if that, you know, yeah, what if this that. means, right? right Yet yeah. Einstein was treated as this public intellectual and beloved by everybody mm -hmm. and, and referred to as being, you know, this is the example of the smartest person in the world. Right. And it's almost right. it's very similar because like I'm I, I think this is a little more accessible than the work of Einstein, honestly. <laughs> like mm -hmm. maybe that's yeah. because I yeah. end towards the humanities rather than the maths and science, sure. but I think I think I think it's similar. I mean, I think this is pretty inscrutable to the average person. I, I especially if you yeah. if I didn't so it's like if I didn't have the internet to look up this stuff. Right. But no it's way. like, you know, a lot of it's like, you know, it's reputation built on recommendation. It's not something you, you know. I don't think most people would go out and find this thing and read it, even at the time. They, they're reading it because all of these really smart, famous people read it and recommended it and said it's really smart. And so I want to be smart and or I want people to think I'm smart. I think there's a big part of that. I, I, that exists today. I mean, you oh, know, it's how many people today. really like David Lynch's movies, you know, especially his yeah. very, very early work. But everybody loves David Lynch. Oh, God, he's a genius. Blah, blah, blah. It comes He's down to, and, and I used to say that about Radiohead, you know. Um, okay, but like yeah. how, how many how many people really listen to Radiohead? How many people really listen to OK right. Computer and appreciated it and understand right. it and blah blah blah? Versus those people who just want to seem smart, and they know that that's everybody thinks that that's smart, so that's what they listen to. You know what I mean? So yeah, I think I think on this podcast a few times before I've bashed Jean Michel Jean Michel Basquiat uh -huh. um, because I think. <laughs> right. I just may be, and I think poetry for me, I was going to say this before, poetry and modern art are very similar to me. They're things mm -hmm. that I have tried over and over again to come back to and really get into. And yeah. I appreciate poetry a lot more than I appreciate most modern art. Once you get to things mm -hmm. that are, you know, like I said, like Basquiat, once, once you get to that, I'm looking at it and I'm just thinking like, who, you know, and this, at least I can read this and I can read what smart people have to say about it. And I can hear them. I'm like, I agree with you. You're right. Yeah, you're saying smart yeah. things about this poem. And you're right. For the most part in the art world, I think what happens is it's just a question of personality. You get somebody who's cooler yeah. than you telling you you're stupid if you don't understand this painting. They're not particularly bright. They can't really explain to you what's so great about sure. the painting. Sure. So, yeah. you know, you're sort of lost with like, oh, you just don't know what you're talking about. I, yeah. my, uh, my wife got in an argument with somebody online. She was critiquing some trend in shoes and some woman, you know, for just, she was oh, like, people are, she was like, people are just stupid for buying these things. They just, they just buy whatever anybody tells them to. And some lady was like, <laughs> well, you know, that's okay. Not everybody understands fashion. And I was like, oh, geez. I was like, yeah, see, that's the kind of argument I would expect. If I was like, I don't like this painting. I don't understand this painting. Somebody be yeah. like, well, that's just because you don't get it and you're stupid. End right. of story. Explain to me why I can't take a paintbrush, do that with it. And make a Jackson Pollock is okay. The answer, and I said this, this, I said this actually to my wife the other day. We were at the Whitney and we were looking at something, and she was like, she said mm -hmm. that. I was like, my first inclination is always like, I could do this. And I said, okay, mm -hmm. that's true. But the, what the response to that, which is correct, is, but you didn't. Right. You, no, absolutely. You could have that's, done that's that, true. But you didn't. This person well, thought, yeah. like, Jackson Pollock did something nobody had ever done before. Going yes. back to the yeah. 30s with Jackson Pollock, I, I, I get things still. As it gets yeah. a little farther forward, they start to lose me. But if somebody said to me, the wasteland is just all about reputation and it's not really good, even I could sit down and tell them what's great about this poem. This is a great, yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of giving away my Wait. vote here, but I'm just saying this is a great poem. Like it really well, I'll tell you, I'll say this, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it is really, if it, it is, if it gives you a feeling, I mean, if you look at something and you just have no feeling about it at all, mm -hmm. um, you're completely lukewarm, 
you know, it's milk toast. And then I, I would I would say that whatever it is, is probably complete reputation. It's great that it's beloved by geniuses, but if no if anybody else looks at it and they don't get something out of it, and I think that's where the 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 analogy that you know this is all built on reputation sort of falls apart because you can read this and you'll get a feeling from it. You'll you'll feel especially when you when you tie it with the title, right? You anchor that title with it, the wasteland. As a Gen X, I I can read this and see Nirvana. You know, I really can. It sounds weird. I said I, can, I said I exactly that. I was talking about how when you read the when you listen to the lyrics of one of the better nirvana songs uh -huh. at first they sort of sound like nonsense and then you mull them over a little bit and you can kind of understand the connections that are being made they're loose connections that can make give you an impression of the feeling of something that he's trying to say and that's it's not on this level obviously i don't mean to really compare yeah. the two things but i did actually mention that that those kind of lyrics well i don't know if i could explain to you what they mean and sometimes i wonder whether he even intended them to have the meaning that i'm taking from them you know, you can hear like a connection between the words that he's using and the title of a song and an impression that they give. But I don't, and then yeah. I don't know if that was his intention or whether it's just me coming up with that. But I think that's kind of, yeah. I think sometimes I've always wondered this about art, especially literature, because we often we find mm -hmm. all these allusions and references and themes and things in, in great literature. And I always wonder whether it's like when I have a dream, I have a dream, I experience the dream, I wake up and I remember it. And if I think about it, I can usually figure out the symbolism that was in the dream and stuff. And I think my brain, but my brain generated that like subconsciously, it just generated the dream. I didn't intend right. to create a story that's a dream. And yet it's filled with metaphor and meaning in my life. And sometimes I think that's what art is like. I think sometimes you write a poem or you write the lyrics to a song and you had no intention to put forth the themes that come out of it. And yet there they are and they really do work. So I always wonder that about artists myself, not being an artist, I really don't know, but this seems intentional. I think this was crafted. I, I, I think the well, way it was, that... Oh, it was most. Yeah. Well, I think they're all crafted though. You know, it's trying to, it's trying to express how you feel about something at a deeper level than just saying commercialism sucks and we're all getting ripped off by the government and <laughs> yeah. with the man. I mean, you know, that's what they did in the sixties. It was, it was fairly obvious, but you know, you can have a deeper meaning by, by expressing more of a feeling like, like what it seems to me like he's doing, it, it almost seems because there are, so there are different conversations happening in, mm -hmm. in this poem and different voices and different characters that are talking. I mean, this is some of the stuff I get out of it. So they're all disconnected. And to me, that's sort of a statement on kind of life at that time. Like, like you know, we're all pursuing our own things. Some people are poor and broken in a, in a pub talking about stuff that poor people talk about. And some people are talking about really highbrow stuff. You know, these different conversations going on. None of them really connected. There's also, I mean, just the, the name, the wasteland and kind of how it anchors to everything. There's a, a few different ways to think about that. Like he was in, in Europe post-World War One, And World War One. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was, you could describe, you know, the battlefields of France and Germany. Um, as that right these this is oh, the yeah. wasteland or maybe maybe it's the generation that was involved in that it could be you know if you if you think about it if you think about it, it could be a statement about like in america this is we're entering the roaring 20s none of that affected us we got rich off of world war one and uh we were doing yeah. great 
right? It was Europe who had to pretty much shoulder the economic and physical burden of, of war, right? And we did that never affected us. So we're having a great no. time. No, not um, the same. And no, so no. there's also this, so there's this, just like there's these disconnected voices of kind of highbrow versus lowbrow. I'm going to ruin one of my greatest surprises here because I think it's okay. really it's really apropos of what you're saying because okay. the difference between Europe and America at the time and how yeah. this this is the onset of just a complete collapse of Europeans' confidence in their civilization. And that's what he's right. writing about, right? He's writing yeah. about that yeah. to me. That's what this poem yeah. is about. It's about what's left after the war, after that confidence <clears throat> has been destroyed. Yeah. And the difference as Americans... Our 20th century was so different, right, from, yeah. from the European experience because we didn't, ha even World War II, which was horrible, was like a triumphant time for Americans. It was like the, yes. the greatest the greatest moment of American civilization is those 30 years after after World War II or the 20 years afterwards. Yes. And it's it's, I think, in some ways, a lot of the vitality that remained in Europe, especially in the United Kingdom, there was still quite a bit of cultural vitality and stuff like that. A lot of it was inspired by the United States. And the fact that we had not suffered as much in the world wars yes. and really interesting thing that he talks about in the last part, um, what the thunder said, where mm -hmm. the guy, there's the description of the wasteland and the red rock and the no, the lack of water and not even the mm -hmm. hermit thrush singing, right? Mm -hmm. Specifically the bird, the hermit thrush. And I looked yeah. it up. The hermit thrush is an American bird, it does not live in Europe. And not mm -hmm. only does it not live in Europe and it is American. Walt Whitman used the hermit thrush as a symbol for the mm -hmm. American voice in culture and in literature. And so I was thinking that's like a reference to in some way, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's not intentional, but it seems to me like a reference to like the American like voice in the wilderness, you know, like being the thing that sort of props up Europe to some extent, like a little yeah. bit of like optimism and hope of like a new spring and stuff like that mm -hmm. i don't know mm -hmm. maybe that's maybe that's my overwrought theory of the week but i thought that was really cool like that really i read that and i was thinking because he is american he sort of abandoned yeah. being american but he is mm -hmm. american and yeah. i think he really suffered the first world war the way that europeans did i think he saw himself as a european and he became english he changed his citizenship but he strikes me as yeah, a man it, that definitely looked down on all things American, but then he made that reference. Yeah. And I think that's a deliberate yeah. reference. I don't think that's an accident. I think it was, you know, you're right. It, it was completely crafted. But the sound of the water over a rock where the hermit thrush sings in the pine trees. Drip, drop, mm -hmm. drip, drop, 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 drop. But there is no water. Yeah, that's it's it, it is an amazing poem. I just love that opening line. That's probably his most famous line is April is the cruelest of months or the cruelest mm -hmm. month. Yeah. Yeah, breeding lilacs, those so uh, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, out of the dead land. Yeah, yeah, and and it's such no, a it's it, it's so contrary to what we all all think that the, we call you know dead of winter. The winter is the dead time, and he he calls winter winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. You know, uh, I didn't. So the, it opens with so that that that. Mm -hmm. That portion of the poem, the burial shroud, opens with that, right? Mm -hmm. It opens with the April is the cruelest month and the winter kept us warm. And I was, you know, the first mm -hmm. time I read it, I was thinking, oh, it's like a, obviously a juxtaposition. There's supposed to be some irony there. Mm -hmm. And there's, and then there's the reference to Canterbury Tales. I don't know exactly what he means by that, but just it's, it's just references to lots of things from deep European culture, in other words, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, maybe. He says, winter kept us warm. And I was thinking, what, what would that mean? I was thinking that could be a reference to the dead. The dead are underground, buried, mm. and oh, the winter 
insulates you with snow and keeps you warm if you're underground. And then the end of the the, the section, the burial shroud, he meets somebody on the street and he says to him, did that corpse that you planted in your garden bloom? You know, make sure the make sure the dog doesn't come and like dig up that corpse from from your from your yard. And I was thinking that kind of brings it around, right? It's like the two things. Oh, and then there's another Walt Whitman reference when lilacs last in the door, dooryard bloomed. Right. Yeah. When, when Lincoln died, oh, the lilacs. I didn't think of that. But anyway, hmm. so I mean, they, they, it brings it around. And I think it's talking about burial. I read one that was really cool. This guy was talking about how April is the cruelest month. Because if you've been so much through so much death and suffering, like in in World War One, mm-hmm. that even the sight of new flowers in the spring just makes you think, oh, that's going to be destroyed too. Look at that new life. Mm-hmm. That new life is going to be destroyed, just like the next generation of of people will be killed by the next war because war is inevitable. And I was thinking, well, that's I like that too. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty good interpretation on it too. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he meant by it. I really, really like how. And I didn't come up with this myself. I don't want to. I don't want to claim it. But the the opening bit, actually, before the first line of the poem, the mm-hmm. quote from uh, I'm trying to remember what it's. Oh no, I know exactly what it, it's from the Satyricon. There's the quote from the Satyricon up top that's about mm-hmm. the uh, right. It's in Greek and Latin, and yeah. somebody pointed out that that work is only known in fragments. So he opens up this mm-hmm. poem that's going to be all about fragments of civilization left over after the end of civilization with a fragment of something left from a civilization that was destroyed. I thought that was super cool. I thought that was a really cool touch. It's like putting a little Roman ruin at the beginning of the thing, yeah, talking about that's, that's how really all of our cities are ruined. And mm-hmm. I don't know. There's there's a lot of cool stuff like that in here. I mean, really, you could talk about it. So this is actually, you know, it's interesting to think about. So it's 400, what I say, 24 or 34 lines. It's very brief. I mean, it's it's um, not yeah. very long at all. It's fairly um, long it's, for a poem, I think. It's long for a poem, right? But, it, but it's, it's not. It's, but but there's like it's not like the rhyme of the ancient mariner that well, that goes or on. Or the epic on. of Gilgamesh. It's not. No, <laughs> or, no it's not. Or, like or the Iliad or any of those. Or the but Iliad I mean, or the Odyssey um, or the Aeneid yeah. or the or Ovid, yeah. you know. Dante's. Yeah, I, the, I read a quote from Ezra Pound where he said it's the longest poem oh, in English language. And I and I was thinking about it. I was like, no, it's you knew better than that. What do you do? Paradise Lost is like a book. What are you, what are you talking yeah. about? You yeah, know? Paradise Lost is much, much longer. That's what I was going to say. We're getting the abridged version. So Ezra Pound right. went through this like three or four times as long. Yeah. And Ezra Pound went through it and just wholesale cut stuff out, You know, left it on the editing floor, as they, as they say. I'm sure they somewhere you could find the unabridged version. I wonder how different it is. Oh, I don't know whether he kept this. I, I think so. I think like the longer version of part four, the death by water section was apparently much longer. There's a whole section about a a whole character that he followed for like yeah. 70 lines that got cut out. Well, he had a much longer prologue, he had a much longer epilogue. So I mean there there's there's a lot that that was was taken out. They had um and that's interesting to think about. Um, right. What does that say about what his intentions were and I don't know. That's there's a whole lot of actually I saw a whole I think it was in the annotated book that I have but there was a whole discussion about Somebody went and analyzed because they're trying to figure out in what order did he work on the various yeah. parts of mm-hmm. the poem. Yeah. And somebody went back and found the old manuscripts and analyzed which typewriter he had been using so that they could figure out he actually worked on part three before he worked on parts one and two. And I was thinking, oh, man, the uh, just the exhaustive wow. level of detail. I'm glad, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad somebody's yeah. doing it. Right. Like, my God. 
glad that's not that my person. Job. That person is a, is an assistant professor, makes thirty thousand dollars a year. So yes, exactly. <laughs> think about that the next time. He but said, I mean, he, um, I think I can't remember if it's at the end of the poem or the beginning, but yeah. he, where he dedicates it to Ezra Pound. It's yeah. at the beginning. He calls him El yeah. Il Milio Fabro. He calls yeah. him the the better craftsman. And I was well, like, I was, I, and I was just wondering that, like, how much credit do we give? We give Elliot all the credit, but Pound, obviously, you know, obviously Ezra Pound is a big because Ezra Pound not yeah. only pub, not only sort of brought this work to publication and 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 edited it, but he did the same thing for Ulysses. Yeah, basically, yeah, two, two of the greatest works of of twentieth century literature. Ezra Pound is critical to both of those things, and right. Ezra Pound is right. the common link between those two things. Yeah, for so. Sure. You, you got to give him some amount of credit, but I, I kind of think that little epitaph to him, I don't know if it's an epitaph, it's the right word, but whatever, that little comment towards him, I think is a little bit backhanded mm -hmm. if you think about it. Because I think yeah. he's saying like, yeah, you're the better craftsman. You're better at like putting together a poem and editing and stuff. But like, I wrote this, like this, I'm yeah. the one who has the inspiration. You're you're just a maybe. craftsman. Yeah, maybe. You know, you're, oh, you're like, craftsman? You're, oh. You're like, oh, a, that's the, you're uh, like a, uh, you're like a carpenter, you know, or the guy that oh, lays there's, down the there's, tiles, that's the, but you well, know. I mean, there's the, there's Plato has a whole discussion about art versus technique. And it's funny you mentioned Plato too, because Ezra yeah. Pound called himself the midwife of this poem, and that's yes. what right. I think Socrates used to call himself the midwife, and like right. give, make other people give birth to great ideas. We're getting towards the time, so what are you, what are you thinking? I, I well, let me let me well, give first you of all, you're surprised. Like, yeah, let me give well, you. Did, you did anything surprise you on the reread? I was surprised at how much Eastern philosophy there was in here. Yeah, it's Buddhism. Cool. I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get a chance um, to talk about it because some of it's really cool, actually. Yeah, I, you know, he he apparently learned Sanskrit, you know, and he he read uh, a lot of very very old ancient. Maybe that was a thing to do. I don't know. I it, I didn't. I don't see a lot of, you know, you know, I, it just, but I don't see a lot of others that that went to that extent. But no, there's a lot of. I was thinking about. It. I made a note about it to talk about it a little bit, but. I think because of the British Empire, there was this huge mm. influence of India on a lot of works yeah. in the early oh, 20th century. You had lots of people referring. Mm. And then I was thinking, well, that changed. Why did that change? And and I I don't know if I haven't followed this up in any way, but it just occurred to me today. I was like, one of the most famous appropriations of Indian culture in Western civilization mm -hmm. is the swastika. Mm -hmm. And oh, I was thinking yeah. that might have led to the end of that at some point. It might have been those because that Maybe. that belief in the Aryans is, and a lot of these guys ended up being Nazis too. So I don't know. Maybe yes. maybe that's uh maybe that had a bad and obviously the Hindus have nothing to do with Nazism. They're not responsive for it in any way. <laughs> right. But the fact that the same It means thing, peace and love. It means peace and love. Damn it. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's kind of like Wagner. I was listening to Wagner yeah. while I was reading this because of the Wagner references, and I was like, he's amazing. Nobody ever yes. talks about Wagner anymore. Wagner's work is spectacular, but I it's can't. just associated with Nazism completely unfairly. But yeah, so yeah, the the, the Eastern stuff surprised you. I, I like the bit about what the Thunder said. That's probably that's probably my favorite part of the. Uh, yeah. What's your favorite part of the yeah, poem? Favorite part of the poem is probably the the very first section. I don't know why. The opening, yeah. Um, you know, but then again, I'm, I'm I think I'm one degree off from being goth. So yeah, so for yeah. some reason, I that that one that one sort of appeals to me. It just sort of sets the it sets the the atmosphere for the rest of it. So we have all this imagery in the first one that that creates the wasteland for you, and and the rest of it because there there are parts in the rest of it that shy away from all of that, but that you've you've already got April is the cruelest month ingrained. Mm -hmm. You've got you know corpses. You've got yeah. all this stuff right at the beginning that sort of colors your 
um, how you read the rest of it and, and sort of what everything represents after that. So, yeah, I like, you, I like that first one. I like the setting the stage. Do you, I, I don't, I never noticed this. I have been to British pubs, but do, do they say hurry up, please? It's time when it's, no. when it's closing time. Is that a thing? I mean, that's no, I everywhere I read. They're like, that's the traditional call at the end of the night at a British pub. And I was like, I never heard. I guess I'll, I'll have to, I'm going, uh, I'm going this summer. Maybe, so I'll have to. There you uh, go. So maybe maybe it used yeah. to be. Maybe it still would be in a small town. Maybe it's more. It's of a research like, trip, uh, by the way. So this will be part of the research. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I'll have to close that's... down a pub and see what they say. Yeah, you have to. You're just going to have to. So my so, biggest surprise, my biggest surprise is actually a piece of research done by, you know how sometimes they have amateur astronomers mm -hmm. find new stars and things like that. An amateur guy went and analyzed the poem and he came up with this. And I actually Googled it because I was curious about it. I was thinking, who's Stetson? When he's on the bridge and he hails the mm -hmm. guy and says, hey, Stetson. And mm -hmm. then says later his name is Ariel. I was like, "Who's the, what's that a reference to? And there's a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. But this amateur guy figured out that Thomas Stearns Elliot can be can anagram to Ariel something Stetson. So it's just a reference to T.S. Eliot. It's an anagram. Of That's the name. interesting. T.S. Eliot is well recorded as being a fan of things like anagrams. So it's, it's pretty so, clear. So that you're saying that Jim Morrison with uh, Mr. Mojo Rising was taking a page from T.S. Eliot? Oh, that's the first I've ever heard of that, but that that does make sense. You've never, you didn't know that? that no, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a Doors guy. Is, uh... I'm not a Doors guy, but that's cool. I like that. But yeah, probably. I can yes, see, I can see Jim Morrison Jim being influenced. Rising. Probably. I can see him, I can see him being influenced by T.S. Eliot, sure. Certainly by the, uh, by the Eastern philosophy. It is so easy to dismiss poetry like modernist or abstract art of any kind because of where, where the progression went, right? When you when you uh -huh. tape a banana to a wall and call that art, because that that has happened and, and is <laughs> yes, out there. Sure yeah. Have you heard this story? You gotta go look it up. No, no. The I best haven't. part of the story is the guy that walked up, took the banana off the wall, and ate it. <laughs> the artist yeah. was pissed. Anyway. Oh, was the but, artist? Um, I would have thought that would have been part of it. I would have thought that the artist No, was no, he was he was ticked. Oh, okay. It was like that's like thirty thousand dollars. It was a banana. Uh, anyway, so um so I think I think what you know the the conclusion it's sort of the conclusion of any uh, reductionist type of theory or philosophy or even relativist theory or philosophy you get to a point where it's all relative it's nothing it's just nothing Blech. okay mm -hmm. there you go you know is murder okay oh well it's all relative no right <laughs> it shouldn't be I think what what happened with with modern modernist poetry is is the conclusion that it kind of came to where you have one word on a page or something like that. You know, there's the very people wanting to be very abstract about it. But that aside, what I'm saying, I guess, is that I, I never really appreciated it because I was very jaded by that. I came back mm -hmm. to it, coming back to it now here, it's it's a lot more meaningful. And again, like you and I both got Nirvana out of it. We're looking yeah, at like it's fun. like, you know, the angstus angsty type of stuff, you know, poetry of our of our generation. And looking at this and saying, oh, this is sort of the origin of that. I don't know. It, it's I appreciated it quite a bit. So I wish I wish I talked about this a little bit more while we were going through the poem, but I feel like I actually thought I'm getting a sense from talking to you about the poem that this is not what mm -hmm. you were thinking and choosing it. But I felt like this is a very appropriate poem for today. For I, I told you that. No, I told okay. All right. I, I all right. told okay. you that. Go back yeah, to the tape. I, but go back to our but tape. I feel like <laughs> I feel like, but well, okay, yeah, no, you did say something along those lines, but I feel like, I don't know if other people feel this way about America in 2024, 
but I feel like all of the things <laughs> I thought were great about our culture and our civilization mm -hmm. are like mm -hmm. in ruin yes. and, and like need some kind of rejuvenation, you know, like some kind of a let's let's change this and like and let's let's get some of these young people to like <clears throat> do something instead of complaining right. about everything. Do yeah. what you do best, like innovate, find me something yeah. new that makes me fall in love with this cultural all over again. I don't know. That's kind of what I was taking out of it. I was reading and I was like, that's why this is having so much meaning for me at the time, because I feel mm. like, and then I was thinking, is that just how everybody feels when they get older? Because, <laughs> you know, was there's certainly a glory days kind of aspect to it, but, but it's also like, I don't know, it's, it's something about like, you're finding deeper meaning in things that you didn't pay attention to when you were younger. And, and I guess, you know, kudos to T.S. Eliot. He was only like 23 or something like that when he wrote this. Uh -huh. So yeah. quite young, of course, Kurt Cobain was about 23 when he broke through, died at you know, yep. 27, so, but it was, so was Jim Morrison. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, the 27 club, it struck me differently because of the time we're living in, you know, if you were mm -hmm. living in like the 1950s with the Mad Men era where, America was the giant on earth or something like that. Maybe it would have, right. would have spoken differently, but again, remember he was, wasn't writing in America. He was writing in Europe. And right. from that perspective, they were a wasteland in a lot of different ways. I would think for Americans to be the seventies would be, I always think that what we're doing right now is very similar to what the seventies were like. Like there was all this turmoil and everybody was just kind of, and yet yeah. when you look back at the seventies, there's a ton of, cultural just wealth going on there's a million great movies the music is cool like yeah when yeah, i looked but, back on it as a, when i was a kid and i thought about the 70s i was like oh that was the terrible time that was the dark yeah. time you know? <laughs> i remember that you look, too, yeah. when you look back yeah. on it now you're like oh there's all this wonderful stuff that came out right of that and i'm like but you know this not, the, the 70s is not going to happen for the they didn't try to they didn't try to conceptually change what we are like there's all always like there's always no, founding I think it's quite the opposite. I think the great stuff from the seventies is all a callback to something earlier. Oh, exactly. Trying to go back. Yeah. It's all, back. it's all like, it's right. all like, well, not, not necessarily trying to go back, but like what no, this no, no. I, I don't mean like, like, I don't mean like going back old fashioned, but trying to remember, remember, it's like, remember, remember. why you're here. Remember yeah. why you're here. You know, remember what, what we were founded on type of thing. That was the seventies. You're right. Late sixties yeah. and seventies were like that, but, but now, okay. So like for a different, for example, Freedom of speech. I mean, they had rallies for freedom of speech on Berkeley, you know, at Berkeley and, and, and at various campuses all over the world because they were getting pushback for speaking out against the war, okay, against, against mm -hmm. Vietnam. Now you have rallies in defense of censorship. Like you yeah. can't say what you shouldn't. People shouldn't be able to say what they want. What I've realized is that I've always been a big free speech advocate, like free speech, end of story. Mm -hmm. Everybody's free speech. But what yeah. I've realized is that most people, they advocate free speech for what they want to say. Exactly. When somebody says yeah. something and disagree with them, all yeah. of a sudden they don't believe in free speech anymore. Right. I think we have we have sprinted out of bounds from... from yeah, we're, yeah, we're definitely not subject. talking about what we were meant to talk about. <laughs> this is the part that everybody in America is waiting for, Dave. It's That's all right. on you right now. And I have, so, I have uh, telegraphed... Are you going to toast this classic? I have telegraphed myself throughout this work. I think this is great. Yeah. I had a... I had a blast reading this and learning about it and following up illusions and things. I don't know. I think maybe you actually don't like this as much as I do, but this is my jam. Like the, 
the yeah. the erudite douchebag that is supposed to like this poem that is this, uh -huh. this is me maybe not quite the guy he envisioned but i'm just saying i sure. enjoy looking up references to things and i really dug this so i'm i'm all in it, I'm it's funny you say that toast. maybe i didn't enjoy it as much as you I, well first of all i'm glad to hear it I'm, I'm gonna let you edit in clinking sound so cheers clink okay it's not that i don't enjoy it it's just that i spend more time in this world than you do this is where yeah, I work. Yeah, you got you got to know that. So, probably a little more cynical. Um, You're a little more cynical about literature than I am. Yeah, probably true. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not so much cynical. It's a little bit more pedestrian to me than it is to you. It's a bit more novel uh, to do this sort of work, mm -hmm. whereas this is sort of what <laughs> where I live. But uh, anyway, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I, I really am. This is sort of just one of those things where I looked and I'm like, what What can we do? And I was like, oh man, this is. We haven't read a really long poem. I didn't want to get a Paradise Lost. But this is something I have, like, a, I have a perspective yeah, list yeah. of topics to do on the show. And on there, it was literally written mm -hmm. long poems, wasteland, question mark. So well, look at that. See, uh, I had the idea of doing Gary, that we're, we're starting to meld doing, doing yeah, a Vulcan a mind melt here. All right. So bro. I'm toasting. So this has passed the toasting, the classics gauntlet. The wasteland survives. It is not. Do you have our recommendation, everybody? You need to go out and, and, and read this poem or have somebody read it to you. Um, read it once. Before, give, give yourself a chance. Yeah. Try to read it once. Then, then listen to it. And then, if right. you're digging it at all, if you enjoy the couple of passages that are just great poetry, go ahead and hit the illusions and have some fun with the references because they enrich what the poem means. You, you yeah. cannot say something too smart about this poem. I think you cannot yeah. out intellectualize no, E.S. Eliot. Like, right. go for it. Like, say that. Say the like I said. My overwrought theory of the week about the hermit thrush. Just do things like that, and you'll be rewarded. <laughs> anyway, also just take time. Take time to absorb the, just how it makes you feel. I mean, that, that's a big part of this. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. a big part of modernist art. Is don't worry about the words. Don't worry about what what you're seeing. You know, in a Picasso painting, like how does it make you feel? Because mm -hmm. that's what they're going for. And I think that's a big big part of it is experiential type of thing. So, thank you for joining us, all five of you. We really appreciate it. Yep, every everyone. My name is yeah. Dave MacArthur. My name is Dr. Professor, PhD, Clint Lanier, PhD. I didn't yeah, know you had you. two PhDs. That's, that's well, good. Yeah. That's, that's, I just repeated it front and back. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for joining us again, and we will see you next time on... He's toasting the Classics. Peace out, everybody. Uh, there you go. Peace out. That's it for episode 93 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, stay tuned to find out what we'll be drinking as we talk about the much-heralded Western film, Once Upon a Time in the West. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and any thorny lyrical passages thick with illusion you may have crafted. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. Mm -hmm.